Welcome back to the David Glenn Show. David Glenn out, Scott Hamilton in. On this Thursday, the sixth day of February, 10 days removed from the Daytona 500. NASCAR Cup season will begin with the Daytona 500 as it has every year since 1982. How will this season be different than other seasons? What can we expect? We're going to ask our guest, three times a NASCAR Cup champion, now the lead commentator for NASCAR on Fox, DW, Daryl Waltrip. Welcome aboard. Yeah, nice to be with you guys. Uh, beautiful day, and uh, not, like I said, not too far away from the great American race. Well, DW, it's beautiful where you are. We're having, God almighty, it's raining, snowing, <laughs> tornadoes. We got everything in the world going on here, but you're right. Daytona right around the corner. And my first question for you, sir, Jimmy Johnson, last won the title 2016, but it's it's been pretty downhill since, and he's going to retire after this year. Does J.J. turn it around for one more go-around? Well, you never know. When, you have, when you're a talent like Jimmy Johnson is and accomplished, you know, he has 83 wins, seven championships. Uh, it, it, you never count him out. I don't care. If, if, it doesn't matter how long it's been since he last won a race. Uh, he has a great team. Uh, Hendrick Motorsports provides great equipment. Uh, Jimmy Johnson, you don't forget how to drive. So uh, he has a, you know, he has an opportunity every time he goes on the racetrack to get another win and uh, certainly to, to be a contender in the championship. So I never count him out. I will say this, you know, as you get older and as things progress along, uh, the chances of you winning a race or n another championship uh, become a lot lot longer, a lot harder. But uh, nonetheless, I, I still believe Jimmy has uh, – I think he got another win or two in him. And not sure about a championship, but I believe he's got another win or two in, it, look, in, 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 this, in this season. As a guy yourself who drove for so long and had such success, and, and the time comes to finally walk away from it all, what what are some of the things you ask yourself, and, and how hard is it to listen to both sides of your brain? Well, the first thing you have to see, you, you're, you're confident. You lose a little confidence uh, in in yourself, uh, and and then and then I'll never forget Jeff Hammond, who was my crew chief for a number of years. Uh, I was struggling, and Jeff came to me one day, and I was talking about uh, maybe hiring some new, get some new people in, get some new blood, get some new ideas. And Jeff said, we can hire all the people you want, but nobody's going to make you happy anymore. And, and, and that kind of took me, it kind of set me back. But when you're an older driver and you've had the kind of success I had or Jeff had or, or, or you know, Jimmy Johnson, when you've had that kind of success, the first thing you have to do is convince yourself that it's not you. Uh, you you, you kind of, you get down on yourself and you start to think, well, can I, and, and, am I too old? Uh, do I still have the desire? Do I still do I still push as hard as I ever did? If there's an opening, do I go for it or do I hold back? So, and then you start looking at people around you and you say, well, if I had this crew chief or if I had that crew chief or if I had this car or that car. So well, you start looking at all the pieces of the puzzle and trying to figure out what's missing because I was, I was successful and somebody flipped the switch. I don't know what the heck happened. But I was going along. I was winning a championship in 16, had a pretty good year, and like somebody flipped the switch, I haven't been the same since. So you have to convince yourself that it's not you. But I got to tell you the honest truth. 
about 75% of the time, it is you. You just don't want to admit it. And so you make changes. You know, when Chad Knauss and Jimmy Johnson split up, that is an indication that Jimmy has lost confidence in Chad. Chad's as great a crew chief as he ever was. Crew chief is a lot different than being a driver. Chad's probably just as great as he ever was. But Jimmy Johnson says, it's got to be Chad. We've, we've run our course. i got to have somebody new. i got to have somebody different. And so when those things start happening, and then longtime sponsor Lowe's, been in the car ever since I've been in it, they decide they're going to do something different. i got a new sponsor. All those things changing around you uh, is, makes it difficult for you to overcome some of that doubt you have about yourself and get back to the winner's circle. Do, do you remember, though, the moment for yourself when you finally said, this is absolutely what's going to happen? I'm, I'm done. I, you finally came, came to the conclusion after going through all that process you just described that you said, this is it. I've, I've got to step away. Well, I timed out. Uh, I, you know, when you're a three-time champion with 84 wins and, and you hadn't won a race for a few years uh, and you're 52 years old, which I was, yeah, you know, it's hard to build anything around a guy that age. All the owners, uh, you know, 20 years ago were still looking for the next Jeff Ford. They're still looking for that next 18, 20-year-old that they can build on, that they can put a program together, and, and the driver develops and the program develops, and you get, you know, you get the success you're looking for. And so I basically timed out. And, and I, I probably should have quit a couple of years sooner. Uh, the last couple of years I drove, I just I really drove for the money. Uh, I was getting paid well by uh, Kmart at the time. And uh, so I thought, well, what the heck? Um, a couple more years, not going to hurt anything. But in, in all honesty, it, it probably hurt my career. It probably hurt my uh, my image a little bit, my career a little bit. But 20 years later, who remembers? So it all worked out. <laughs> well, and, and Daryl, that's kind of the theme, though, going forward. A lot of these guys aren't driving into their 50s like they used to simply because they make more money earlier in their careers. Well, yes and no. A lot of these guys started. I, I didn't. I think I ran my first Cup race when I was like 25 years old, and so a lot of these guys, a lot of these young drivers today, are starting. You know, they're getting in cars and starting to race cars when they're 16, 17 years old. So they're starting a little earlier, maybe 10 years earlier, but they're retiring a little bit earlier. So if you look at the time frame, a period of time, my 25 years versus somebody else's 25 years, uh, it, it, that really has to do with when you start. And when you finish, uh, yeah, 45 seems to be an age now when guys are retiring, where in my era it was 50, 52, even maybe 55 years old. So they start earlier, so they retire earlier. And the money, look, think about football. I think about this all the time. Uh, Tannehill, who he plays for the Titans, or, or Mahomes, who plays for the Kansas City Chiefs, they're going to sign big, big money contracts. Now, they played with reckless abandon. They, they didn't care. They just were out there to win the game. All of a sudden, you get $40, $50, 60000000 million a year, and you start thinking, whoa, I better be careful. I don't want to get hurt. Whoa, I better watch out. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. So money money changes the way an athlete performs, in my opinion. And and, and maybe, maybe not initially, but you look at every most superstar football, baseball players, once they sign that big money contract, they just don't seem to put up the results that they did before they signed that contract. So I believe that's a factor in everything we do. And I think in racing, it's a huge factor. When you sit down in a race car, uh, in my era, a race, the race cars I drove would kill you. The race cars they drive today, they'll only, they hurt you. They won't kill you. 
And so the guys kind of know that. And, and and so I think money is a deciding factor. You you got to, you made a lot of money. You had a lot of success, and now you don't take quite the chance. The risk-reward factor is not quite the same as it was when you were younger. We're joined by three-time cup champ Daryl Waltrip. You can follow him on Twitter, at all Waltrip. And, Daryl, man, Joe Gibbs racing last year, 19 wins out of 36 races. That is absolutely phenomenal. It's dominating is what it is. And I, I know the rules package that was put into place last year was pretty friendly, and I think it's pretty much the same package this go-around. Yep. Will yep. we see a repeat? Is Gibbs, again, just going to be a dominant force? Well, I don't see any reason why they wouldn't. Uh, the Probably the unknown, I guess, a little bit of an unknown is the new Camaro. Uh, they've made some aerodynamic changes to that car that's supposed to make it better and give the Chevrolets a little bit better chance to maybe uh, get a win or two. But uh, nothing's changed. The cars are the same. The engines are all this 2020 is kind of a, a wait. It's the last year of this era. Next year we go with a 21 car and a whole new design car, a whole new, a whole new ball game. So, the rules are pretty much the same this year. I got to believe the results will be pretty much the same. Look, it's driver lineup. When you look at the drivers that Joe Gibbs has, he has the right drivers at the right time. And you look at any other, maybe even Stuart Haas, if it is Kevin Hart, there's one or two good drivers on, on, on every team, but Gibbs has four great drivers, and that's why they were able to put up the numbers they were able to put up. Plus, you know, it, 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 Coach Gibbs lost his – his son JD earlier last, and you know Denny Hamlin wanted uh, Denny Hamlin to drive the cars and be involved with the team. So uh, I think there was a lot of motivation uh, for that team to do as well as it did. But I don't see that going away. I mean, Coach Gibbs is a great leader. He's just a Daytona 500, and it was number 11, and it's JD's number. And JD wanted uh, Denny Hamlin to drive the cars and be involved with the team. So uh, I think there was a lot of motivation. Uh, for that team to do as well as it did, but I don't know how to motivate people. He knows how to get the most out of them, and I see that going away. I mean, Coach Gibbs is a great leader. He's a great coach, and he knows how to motivate people. He knows how to get the most out of them, and uh, I just think right now it's the right team at the right time with the right people. We're joined by Daryl Waltrip. Follow him on Twitter at all Waltrip. And Daryl, just a couple of more questions going into this 2020 seasons. Uh, we've touched on different storylines: Gibbs dominance, the last go around for Jimmy Johnson. But you've got a pretty darn good rookie class coming in. One they're comparing to that class of 2016: Ryan Blaney and Chase Elliott. Is there a guy that included Ryan Blaney and Chase Elliott? Is there a guy amongst that group that you all to? Well, I think Christopher Bell is going to have a, you know, I think he's a, a talent. Uh, certainly would pick above them all to perhaps win the whole thing. Well, I, I think Christopher Bell has been successful in, in everything he's been in. And uh, that's going to have a, you know, I think he's a, a talent. Uh, certainly he's been successful. And there's, there's some kids that are stepping into pretty good right and everything he's been in. And uh, then there's, there's just a number of other ads this year. Um, so, look, it wouldn't surprise me to see young kids are stepping into pretty good rides this year. Um, so, the uh, you know rookie winner race or two, it's kind of unusual when they do, but it, it does. It, look, it wouldn't surprise me to see a you know rookie winner race or two. It's kind of unusual when they happen, and uh, I think with the talent some of these young kids have gotten, equipment they're going to be in too. But it, it does happen, and uh, I think with the talent some of these young kids have gotten, equipment. Uh, 
uh, it wouldn't surprise me to see some rookies uh, possibly win a race or two this year. And, Daryl, I'm going to put you on the spot a minute before we let you go, and I'm going to bring my producer, Darren, in on this. We have an argument going. I say Stroker Ace is the better NASCAR movie. He likes Days of Thunder. Yeah, I think because I, <laughs> I, I, I guess if you're old like I am and, or if you're as old as I am, you might Stroker Ace might ring a bell with you, but certainly Days of Thunder. I I, I thought that was pretty uh, it was a pretty entertaining movie, and I, I would probably have to go with Days of Thunder. But you probably get checks from Talladega Nights, though, right? Well, I'm getting a few checks from them. Yeah, yeah. I've been, I've been fortunate to be in, in most all the movies back in the day, and uh, you know, a little bit part here, a little bit part there. As a friend of mine said, "Hell, I got a talking part. I must be a big <laughs> deal." So, uh, anyway, my my claim to fame is the, all the Pixar, Disney movies, and the Cars movies. That was that was sort of my claim to fame. Well, what what's that like? That experience actually going in and voicing a movie. Well. It, it's so un. It was the oddest thing I'd ever done because you don't know, uh, you don't know where that part of the, you don't know what part of the movie you're in. You don't know. You just got lines you read, things they want you to do, things they want you to say, uh, reaction to this, reaction to that. But you don't. Really, you've never seen an entire movie put together, so it's a little unusual. But uh, the fact that I was asked to do it and and Daryl Car Trip was a. He was the biggest minor star in the racer in in, in the movie. Uh, that was pretty exciting, and so uh, and I was in all three of them, and I enjoyed every bit of it. I met a lot of great people. And the first movie, the first Cars movie, I was a consultant, and I went out to uh, California and worked with all the producers and all the directors and all the animators. And, and uh, I, that was my favorite movie of all time. The Cars, the first Cars movie, two and three were okay, but the first one really was my my favorite. But it, it was it was like something I'd never done before, and I I got a big kick out of it. They, plus, do... plus, when I when when I, I got to tell you this quick story. I know you got to go. No, but I'm on the elevator at Bristol, Tennessee, and I I got 12 wins at Bristol. That's my track, and I got a grandstand there, and so that and that's that's home for me. And I'm on the elevator with my coat and tie, my little briefcase. I'm headed up to the TV booth to do to, to do TV, and uh, there's two dads. And four little guys on the on the elevator with me, and the dad pokes to one of the kids and says, "Hey, son, you know who that is?" He never looks up. The other dad says, "Hey, son, 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 you know who that is?" He never looks up. Says it's Daryl Waltrip. He never looks up. He says Daryl Cartrip. He was in the movie Cars. That's Daryl Cartrip. They all four stood up, looked at me, and said, "He's real." <laughs> and so it, it was. It was like that. Being in those movies was a great opportunity for me to connect with an audience that i never really connected with before that's crazy have you thought about doing other acting i mean you obviously have the personality and you you seem to get along with everybody i get on i want to see you on tv like acting not doing races <laughs> hey i've been acting my whole life so it's not, it's not a problem for me <laughs> he's three-time cup champ lead commentator for nascar on fox follow him on twitter at all waldrip DW, it's been a pleasure. Look forward to this season. Yeah, man. It should be a great year. Look forward to see what's going to happen. You know, see if that Gibbs dominance continues. See if the Chevrolets can, can you know, get up there and compete. Uh, see how the Fords do. They're always pretty good at Daytona and Talladega and some of the bigger racetracks. So it should be a fun year. Be fun to watch. All right. Looking forward to it, bud. Appreciate it. All right, guys. Thanks much. All righty. It's Daryl Waltrip. Follow him on Twitter at all Waltrip. That's Daryl Cartrip. From Cars 2 and 3.
How about that? That's a great story. You know, that's one of those anecdotes that separates a NASCAR driver from a lot of athletes. And again, I'm going to call them an athlete, and that's another discussion for another day. That is fantastic. Bristol, that's his track. He's got 12 wins there. And and I'm I'm hating that I didn't I got distracted by his car story. I wanted to ask him about the NASCAR Hall of Fame because they had an announcement yesterday that actually touched on something that I've been very vocal about. In the past, they've redone how they're going to select classes going forward. And I've made this argument over and over, not only an argument, but an observation, that the NASCAR Hall of Fame front ended itself too much. They got all the good guys in early, and ever since then it's been eh, it's pretty good. Pretty good, pretty good. All the great ones got in right off the bat. Bloated classes. Going forward, you're wondering, well, who, who are they going to have? Well, they've redone the criteria for it a little bit. And I'm skipping through it right now. The number of inductees reduced from five to three. Outstanding. And they're going to have two different ballots. They're going to have one for contemporary drivers and then one for pioneers. So two contemporary drivers or stars, however, contributors, inducted annually along with one from the pioneer category. Next year's class will bring the total number of members in the Hall of Fame to 58. One of the people on the committee, the new voting panel, Daryl Waltrip. And this is, a, this is a great panel. It's called the Honors Committee. Twelve representatives, seven new voters, Richard Childress, Rick Hendrick, Ron Hornaday Jr., Dale Jarrett, Roger Penske, Rusty Wallace, and D.W. on that voting panel. We might have to call him back, Darren, to ask him about that panel because that was my bad. I wanted to talk to him about that. We'll plan on that next time I'm on the show. But for now, you've got me hosting the David Glenn Show. Throwback Justice League. You know, Batman, Wonder Woman, Superman, Aquaman. If there was a combine event where you had to talk to marine life, Aquaman is your guy. Zay Jones is dominating the three-cone drill. Aquaman is dominating the talk-to-porpoises drill. This is the David Glenn Show. Welcome back to the David Glenn Show. Can't wait to rehear, re-listen, revisit, relive our interview with Daryl Walter. I've interviewed him before, but not like that. That was, <laughs> he was fired up. Let's go on a road trip with DW. But would it be exhausting? Is he like that all the time? Hey, man. Hey, hey. <laughs> You know, they have these uh, noise-canceling headphones now, thank God. I'd put on a pair of those if I had to, but if he got out of control, that would be a good guy, a good partner to ride around with. Harold Varner III, he's back in the lead now. He's part of that group at four under at the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am, the Crosby Clam Bake. This is my favorite time of year for golf, by the way, Darren. It's absolutely fantastic. And next week is my favorite tournament the genesis at uh, riviera riviera my favorite non-major golf course love it and it's a short course by today's standards speaking of courses and length the uh, rna usga came out with its report earlier this week uh, it's distance report duh they're hitting the ball far <laughs> thank you technology but the genie's out of the bottle 
And one guy, I think it was one of the, it was Luke Donald, maybe. He said it's because of the course developers that the longer the courses were because they could put more houses on them so that they needed to be able to hit the ball further to accommodate the bigger courses that were accommodating more houses. I, I didn't really think that made a lot of sense. I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. It kind of does, but it kind of doesn't. They want to build more houses, so they make the courses bigger to fit more houses, but because the courses are bigger, they got to hit the ball further. I don't know. I like the idea that Jack Nicholas has of rolling the ball back, playing with a different ball at the pro level. They don't want to make they don't want they make the game any more difficult for guys like us. They want to keep it as it is. We want they want us to be able to hit it 300 plus yards, which I'm not going to, at least not straight. They want us to be able to spin a ball like crazy, which I might, but it'd probably be sideways. But when it comes to the pros, they want to keep it in check. They should want to keep it in check because what we're seeing now is ridiculous. I can't tell you the last time I saw a pro hit driver, say, four iron on a par four. I, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you. That many times I've seen a pro hit driver, even three wood on a par five for second shot. I would like to see that again. I, here's an idea that a friend of mine had. Scott Michau, former columnist at the Augusta Chronicle, he said limit the number of clubs in a bag. Then you have to be a little more creative. You can only have 10 clubs in your bag. So instead of going out and you've got six wedges and hybrids and all this stuff, you have to be a little more judicious with what you put in your bag, and you have to be able to hit different kinds of shots with different kinds of clubs instead of being able to rear back and take a full swing, knowing exactly the yardage you're going to get with that club because every gap has been accounted for. I think that would make more sense than trying to dial back the technology, except for perhaps when it comes to the driver. These 460cc size drivers that have been in play for, gosh, 15, 16, 17 years now, Huge difference. Go back and try to hit one of the drivers before that. It's it's crazy. I, I'm not good. Let's make that clear. I admit I'm not good, and I'm really bad with those. I can barely make contact. But maybe it's because I'm used to hitting these monstrosities, these colossal drivers. That would be the easiest thing to do for me. Regardless, they're out and playing in Pebble Beach. They're going to be in L.A., Next week, and I can't wait. Masters just around the corner. Will Tiger repeat as Masters champion? We shall find out. And will Pete Rose ever get into the Hall of Fame? That's the question being asked yet again. 30 years after he was banished from baseball, he's now making another effort to get reinstated by Major League Baseball. And with that, would I would presume also entry into the Baseball Hall of Fame. We're going to ask Don Vanada Jr., senior writer at ESPN and host of Backstory, that very question on the other side. You're listening to The David Glenn Show. Megan Rapino is joining us on The David Glenn Show. Not everybody wants to sort of uh, back up Colin Kaepernick. Why are things like that important to you? I think it's all of our responsibility to try to make our country and our society and ultimately the world um, a place that is equal for everyone. This is The David Glenn Show. Welcome back to The David Glenn Show. 
Our next guest is senior writer at ESPN. He's also the host and executive producer of Backstory. It's a fantastic new program on ESPN. Don Venata Jr., welcome aboard. Hey, Scott, how are you today? I am well, sir. I appreciate you joining us. And, uh, Don, i got to tell you, I've enjoyed the show so far. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Can you uh, We're having a lot of fun with it. Well, you seem to be having a lot of fun with it, and, and you've really got to dive deep into each topic on the program. How, how much work typically goes into each episode, at, at least on the reporting side? Oh, quite a bit. Uh, I talk to dozens of people for each episode, uh, even though maybe only eight to ten people appear on camera. Uh, the goal of each episode of Backstory is to take viewers behind the scenes of a big sports story or sports scandal that they think they know all the details about. And it's a pretty high bar we have to clear each show where we want to tell people something or many things that they don't know about a pretty well-known sports story or sports scandal. And I think we're two for two. I think we've done fairly well with the first two episodes, and we've got a whole bunch of more episodes in the pipeline coming soon. Well, of course, the one we approached you about was regarding Joe Jackson and Pete Rose. Pete Rose, again, asking Commissioner Rob Manfred to remove his name from MLB's ineligible list. And uh, presumably, he would then have be up for consideration for the Hall of Fame. Well, first of all, I, what are the odds of this actually happen, happening, of Manfred meeting with Pete to discuss this? Well, I think the odds are pretty good. Uh, that the commissioner will at least sit down with Pete Rose and hear his appeal. It's the second time he would do that. Manfred granted Rose uh, some time back in 2015 when shortly after Manfred became commissioner, uh, and then he denied Rose's application in December of 2015. But I'm reading between the lines. Commissioner Manfred is at the owners' meetings in Orlando this week. He was asked about this earlier today. He said he hasn't had a chance to look at the petition, but will, and said, you know, under the agreement Pete Rose signed in 1989 when he accepted this lifetime ban, it granted him the opportunity to apply for reinstatement periodically, and Manfred said he's exercising that. So it sounded to me, Scott, as if the commissioner will sit down with Pete Rose in the coming weeks. Is, is he saying, though, that Pete has begun to adhere to these changes, though, because, because baseball has changed? Baseball is looking at gambling through a different set of lenses, and maybe Manfred is looking at Pete's situation likewise through a different set of lenses. Well, that's going to be one of the arguments, uh, Scott. You, you, you hit on a theme of our episode, Ban for Life, our backstory episode that we go into, is that um, you know the, the challenge that Pete Rose has in his appeal here to be reinstated is that he has to prove to Commissioner Manfred and the other baseball executives that he's reconfigured his life. That's the language that's in the agreement that he signed back in 1989, accepting this lifetime ban. Now, what does reconfigure your life mean? I think from baseball's perspective, it means that Rose is sorry, he's repentant. He has said that to us in our interview and in other interviews. But I also think a big stumbling block for Rose is that he continues to bet on baseball legally in Las Vegas, which he has every right to do. It's where he lives. But I think that that's a non-starter for baseball. If they are going to uh, let Pete back into the game, he is, I believe, going to have to pledge to Manfred and uh, the MLB executives that he's not going to bet on baseball if that happens. Now, whether Manfred will be willing to take him, take Pete at his, at his word, 
Uh, that's a question I can't answer. Certainly Rose, for 15 years, as is pretty widely known, kept denying that he bet on baseball until 2004 when he finally admitted it in his book uh, that was published that year. So uh, those are all questions, Scott, I'm not, I don't know how to answer, but I think those are going to be the issues on the table if and when Manfred agrees to sit down with Rose. Don, one of the things I got from that episode, and I never thought I would say this, and let me preface this first by saying I grew up in an area where Pete Rose is a god. Pete Rose is everything. Pete Rose is worshipped by the people. And I grew up in the Ohio Valley area. And and I, I watch your program, and when you first engage him and you begin your interview, he, he's, he's, in a, he's in defense mode. He's almost like a turtle backing into its shell and comes out to attack. But by the end of that interview, Don, for the first time since all this happened, or at least came to light in 1989, I felt like Pete Rose was a sympathetic character. I, I, it was amazing, the transformation. Do you feel that Pete Rose is truly contrite and, and ready to go and, and mean what he says when he goes to Rob Manfred and says, I'm sorry, I've changed? Well, I had the same reaction, Scott. I, I was taken aback and quite surprised the way the early part of the interview went. Pete Rose knew we were doing an episode for a show called Backstory, and I started interrogating him about 1989 and the choices he made, the lies he told for 15 years, and he got very upset. It felt as if he was going to rip off the microphone and call off the interview, but he sort of calmed down, and you're absolutely right. I I thought he made one of the best cases I had ever heard publicly uh, for himself to be considered for reinstatement and to be in the Hall of Fame, and comes across... uh, sympathetically in a way that you don't normally see. So if he brings that attitude to Manfred again, it'll be interesting to see uh, how the commissioner reacts to that. Uh, You know, he's going to be 79 years old in April. Uh, And the question, there's a big question out there about whether if you're on the ineligible list of, of major league baseball, and Pete is the only living player on that list right now. uh, If when you die, According to the Hall of Fame, if you're on the ineligible list and you die, you are no longer eligible for the Hall of Fame even after you pass away. If you remember some questions that I asked Pete about that during our interview. So uh, Pete's got limited time here to get reinstated and to get voted on by the Hall of Fame. Uh, I think he's aware of that. I think the people around him, his attorneys are aware of that, uh, which is why they decided to to file this petition uh, when they did. We're joined by Don Venata, ESPN. Follow him on Twitter at DVNJR. And it's, it's ironic, Don, when you think about it, that the one thing, the one genetic trait that made Pete Rose stand above most baseball players was his competitive spirit. But it's actually to his own detriment. It's his own worst enemy because he's fought this thing tooth and nail and he denied for so long. And he still can't seem to quite completely get out of his own way. Yeah, he's been his own worst enemy, for sure, Scott. Absolutely. I, you know, the 15 years of lies. Look, he stonewalled the John Dowd investigation, uh, did not cooperate at all when he signed that agreement accepting a lifetime ban. And that's very important. And the people who feel that Pete Rose does not deserve to be reinstated uh, or put into the Hall of Fame often talk about that, about the fact that he stonewalled the inquiry and that even in 1989, Uh, When he signed that agreement, he never admitted that he bet on baseball and continued to lie about that for 15 years. So if he had told the truth from the very beginning, thrown himself on the mercy of the court, 
uh, of the Court of Public Opinion, as well as uh, with Bart Giamatti, and after Giamatti's untimely death, after this was all resolved with Faye Vincent, he very likely would have been reinstated by now. I think I think there's that's a, that's you know not a leap to say that, uh, but he's he can't get out of his own way. That competitive spirit that you talk about, Scott, certainly I think drives him. He's always justifying his actions. I mean, even in his interview with us, when he said that he doesn't gamble illegally anymore, uh, but gambles legally on baseball, that distinction for him is an important one um, because he got in trouble for illegal gambling with uh, a network of bookmakers back in the 80s when he was the manager of the Cincinnati Reds. So he's always splitting hairs. He's always sort of justifying the behavior uh, I think if he stops doing that and goes in with Manfred the way he conducted himself in the final 15, 20 minutes of our interview that I did with him last summer out at the Mandalay Bay, I think he's got I, – I believe he's got a legitimate shot, certainly a better one than he had back in 2015 when he first saw the commissioner. After your extensive reporting and research, and uh, this is purely speculation on your part – do you think that he had some kind of backroom agreement with Giamatti that, look, sign this now and we'll revisit it in a year, maybe two years, and, and we'll make everything right? I think that Rose believes that's the case. Uh, he did discuss that with me a little bit on camera, but also off camera. Scott, it's a very good question. It's one I was very interested in. Um, I think that his lawyers, Rose's lawyers and Pete at the time felt, uh, that Giamatti would be sympathetic to him uh, after a few years. I mean, that's that's purely speculative, obviously, and, and unfortunately Giamatti had that heart attack, that fatal heart attack, shortly after um, uh, deciding the Pete Rose case. Um, so we'll never know. But certainly Faye Vincent was far more hard-headed uh, about uh, Pete Rose, I think, than even Giamatti was, uh, as was Bud Selig and, and all the successors. Manfred seems to have an open mind. He certainly, I think, brought it back in 2015 to Rose. And if he sits down with them again, possibly will again. And to your point earlier about gambling, Major League Baseball has embraced gambling. That was a, a big part of the final act of our backstory episode. Uh, you know, since the Supreme Court ruled in May of 2018 that states can uh, now approve legalized gambling, they get all sorts of revenue streams from their sponsorships and data sales to gambling companies. And so that hypocrisy word sort of hangs over this uh, decision by Manfred. And certainly a lot of fans I've noticed since our story yesterday morning have been pointing that out. So that's another uh, backdrop, I think, to the way this Pete Rose reinstatement application is going to play out. I, I almost have to think it's going to play into Pete's favor because baseball has kind of painted itself into a corner with, with this with the sign-stealing thing where they didn't punish the players, and I guess that stoked Pete's fire, but also the way they handled the PEDs over the year, burying their head into the sand until it was finally forced to acknowledge it was going on. That's right. And, you know, Rose's uh, petition – for reinstatement uh, that was sent to the commissioner's office yesterday makes a, a pretty compelling argument that there cannot be one set of rules for Pete Rose and another for everyone else. And, you know, look, the Houston Astros, the Boston Red Sox, they won World Series titles by using electronic means to steal signs. The Astros, that, that case has been adjudicated, the 2017 World Series champion Houston Astros, and not a single player was fined or suspended even a single game. That is the main thrust of the argument that Pete Rose and his lawyers are going to bring 
to Commissioner Manfred. Now, Manfred's position, of course, is, well, we had to do that. We had to give immunity uh, to those particular players uh, to get to the truth. And we, we punished the general manager and the manager and fined the club. Uh, but that seems like barely a slap on the wrist or no slap on the wrist for the players. And, and to your point, Scott, about the PED era, none of those players were banned for life. All those players' names appear on the Hall of Fame. Some of them have gotten into the Hall of Fame. And so, yeah, this is a, it's a prickly question for Manfred, and the lawyers for Rose know that and uh, are certainly seizing the moment when it comes to what happened uh, to the adjudication of the Astros players and hoping that'll carry the day in their arguments to get Pete Rose back into baseball. Just a couple more questions with Don Vanetta Jr. of ESPN. And, Don, I'm of the mind that baseball is going through its most seismic period in its history, from the time of Abner Doubleday and Cartwright up until Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. The game was basically unchanged. And going from Jackie Robinson up until the beginning of the 21st century, nothing really happened to change the fabric of the game except perhaps Kurt Flood challenging the reserve clause. But what's happened over the last 15, 16, 17 years, seismic shifts throughout baseball, the PED, the cheating, other things that have shaken the game. How firm is is the is Major League Baseball's footing right now? How how sound is its structure as it continues to reinvent itself as it has over the past decade? Yeah, I agree, Scott. I think that this is a very perilous time for baseball. Uh, it's, its fan base keeps getting older and older. The median age, I believe, of Major League Baseball fans now is in the mid-50s, I believe, 56, 57, the last time I saw it. They have to find a way to speed up the game, to appeal to younger people, and a major way for them to do that is through gambling, it's through fantasy but really through legalized gambling. And so, again, it goes back to that. If the future of the game and appealing to young people and get them interested in baseball is gambling, well, you know, the worst pariahs uh, who were involved in gambling scandals in baseball history is Shoeless Joe Jackson and his fellow Chicago Black Sox who took bribes to throw the 1919 World Series against the Cincinnati Reds and Pete Rose. And the book seems to be closed on Shoeless Joe, uh, and the Black Sox, but it's not yet on Pete Rose. So I, I believe, Scott, a lot of this is going to be is is going to hang in the balance of how fans react. And just judging from Twitter and from social media, since our story uh, was posted yesterday morning, it seems about ninety percent, roughly eighty-five to ninety percent, seem in favor of Pete Rose uh, being uh, taken off the ineligible list by Commissioner Manfred and being put into the Hall of Fame. And so, yeah, it's a perilous time for baseball, and that hypocrisy word hangs over uh, these proceedings, and they are on their back foot in many ways. And, uh, you know, I guess it's going to be part of the calculation, I would assume, uh, by Manfred, of uh, is, has Rose served enough time, and how many fans is this going to, uh, you know, diehard fans, longtime fans, is this going to really upset if I come out against Pete Rose a second time? And and one more question, Don, before we let you go. It seems to me that this might be the first instance a baseball commissioner really has to adhere to fan reaction in, in order to make a decision and not necessarily be guided by, by the thoughts and by the wishes of former players like a Ted Williams, like a Bob Feller, when it comes to, to changing the game or directing the game. Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a great question, too, Scott. And um, I believe that 
Manfred will, you know, look, he'll 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 adhere to uh, his own conscience when he when he views this, views the facts, sits down with Pete Rose if he decides to do that. But I, I do believe that the fans uh, are and and how where they come down on this are going to be part of the equation. I don't know that for certain. But you're right. In the past, um, certainly the legends of the game, Ted Williams, Bob Feller, we had reporting in the episode of Backstory, they were dead set against Pete Rose getting into the Hall of Fame. And I saw that Hank Aaron was interviewed by NBC uh, on the Today Show. They had a clip of him. Hank Aaron's against Pete Rose uh, getting into the Hall of Fame. Now, this was, I think, taped before the reinstatement application. Um, but he believed that that Rose should stay on the ineligible list. So there's going to be a lot of lobbying on both sides, and how loudly the fans are heard by Manfred will be very interesting to watch in the coming weeks and months as this plays out. It's definitely going to be interesting. He's ESPN's senior writer. He's also the host and executive producer of Backstory. Follow him on Twitter at DVNJR. Don, fantastic. We appreciate you joining us today. Thank you, Scott. Really appreciate your time. All right. We're back to wrap up the final hour of the David Glenn Show. Coach Lou Holtz is joining us. What can you tell us about those four seasons in Raleigh? Everybody from North Carolina calling us Boo You and Agriculture You. And I remember walking in the press conference saying, I want everybody in the state to understand agriculture is better than no culture. Stay with us on the David Glenn Show. We're wrapping up the final hour of the David Glenn Show. Top 25 action tonight. Cal at number 24, Colorado, 8 o'clock tip-off. Pac-12 Network. Southern Cal, number 23, Arizona, ESPN2. That's a 9 o'clock tip. Also 9 o'clock, 25th ranked Houston, 17-point favorite versus Tulane, ESPNU. And number two, Gonzaga, favored by 25 and a half versus Loyola Marymount. It's on CBS Sports Network, 11 o'clock. In North Kakalaki, 6 o'clock, Asheville hosting U.S. USC Upstate, 7 o'clock. Campbell at Winthrop. Central Florida at East Carolina. Elon going to be at Trask Coliseum. Take on UNC Wilmington. And App State, 12 and 11, 6 and 6 in the Sun Belt, hosting UT Arlington. Hampton at High Point Mills Athletic Center. ESPN Plus with Darren Vaught on the mic with Brian Geisinger. AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am going along out in California. Harold Varner back to four under. He's tied for the lead. We'll monitor that going out into the weekend. Don't forget the weekend. Little game. Duke at Carolina. Six o'clock ESPN. It'll be at the Smith Center. For my producer, Darren Vaught, and intern, Will, I would also like to thank my guest, Andrew Carter of the Raleigh News and Observer, Charlotte Observer, talking about the demise of Wake Forest basketball. College football analyst and recruiting connoisseur, Tom Luganbill of ESPN, joining us to talk about National Signing Day. Hey, we still don't know where Jordan Birch's paperwork is. Maybe it'll pop up in Columbia somewhere. Daryl Waltrip, three-time NASCAR Cup champion and lead commentator for NASCAR on Fox, previewing the 2020 season. And Don Venata Jr., host and executive producer of Backstory on ESPN. I'm Scott Hamilton. David Glenn back in-house tomorrow. But until then, we're out.
Mr. President Barack Obama, welcome to the David Glenn Show. How are you? David, it's great to be on. It's wonderful to, to talk to the folks in North Carolina. I always say uh, I love the state of North Carolina, love the people in North Carolina. Even the folks who don't support me down there are nice to me. The David Glenn Show.